Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Uncle Jim was dead. I could scarcely believe it, but the little yellow missive which had just been handed to me by the Western Union messenger boy left no room for doubt. It was short and convincing. Come to Peoria at once, James Braddock dead of heart failure, Corbin and his attorneys. I should explain here that Uncle Jim, my mother's brother, was my only living near relative. Having lost both father and mother in the Iroquois theater fire at the age of 12 years, I should have been forced to abandon my plans for a high school and commercial education, but for his noble generosity. I was glad when the time came for me to find employment and thus become independent of his bounty. My position as bookkeeper for a commission firm in South Water Street, while not particularly remunerative, at least provided a comfortable living, and I was happy in it, until the message of his death came. All the way to Peoria, I thought about Uncle Jim. He was not old, only forty-five, and when I had last seen him, he had seemed particularly hale and hearty. This sudden loss of my nearest and dearest friend was, therefore, almost unbelievable. I carried a leaden weight in my heart, and it seemed that the lump in my throat would choke me. I carried a leaden weight in my heart, a lump in my throat, a rock in my shoe, and a ball of twine in my kneecap. My Uncle Jim was dead, but even worse, I was headed for Peoria. (laughs) You just heard an excerpt from the story The Thing of a Thousand Shapes by Otis Adelbert Klein. And we're talking about it here on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Thank you for joining us on this first free episode of January. And Happy New Year, folks. Happy New Year! This will be our 15th year of podcasting this year. Wow. Jesus Christ. It's also another important anniversary. Weird Tales, the magazine that published H.P. Lovecraft, as well as so many of the authors we've covered over the years, Tennessee Williams even. That magazine published its first issue in March of 1923. We didn't get a chance to celebrate that 100-year anniversary last year, but we wanted to mark the occasion of the new year by doing so. This story was published in the very first issue, along with the cover story, Ooze, which we discussed on episode 555 of the old show, and we like that one a lot. The Thing of a Thousand Shapes was serialized in the very first two issues of Weird Tales, so we're going to make it a two-parter. And along for the ride with us, a man with a voice as creepy as a theremin. Ladies and gentlemen, it's THE Andrew Lehman! Mispronounced uh, theremin there. Yeah. Something a professional like Andrew would never do. No. Also, something to know about Andrew is that his voice sits just a few inches below his mind. One of the minds behind the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. The word on the street is they've just released an all-new Dark Adventure Radio Theater production. Bring that word into your home, because it's true. This production is called The Temple of Jupiter Ammon. Let me give you the pitch. Okay. Notorious treasure hunter Count Byron Kuhn de Prorock leads an expedition into the Libyan desert in an attempt to find the lost tomb of Alexander the Great at the Temple of Jupiter Ammon. Can the Count succeed where countless others have failed and unearth one of history's greatest archaeological finds? A brief mention in a letter from Lovecraft inspired this thrilling original tale of two-fisted adventure. I'm going to freak out if I don't have that right now. (laughs) There are so many other great offerings at the HPLHS, but you're a fool if you don't nab that up. Thank you, Andrew, for reading for us. We're always so happy to have you. Let's hear about this author. 
Who is Otis Adelbert Klein? He was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1891. So about the same age as Lovecraft. He grew up on his parents' farm just west of Chicago in Coloma Township in Whiteside County. Klein remarked that his father had a pretty good library, which got him into astronomy and H.G. Wells. War of the Worlds came out when he was only seven years old. Wow. He got his first writing job when he was a young teen when he published in the local newspaper, but he was writing songs. Hmm. And I thought to myself, they published music in newspapers? <laughs> they did. You didn't know that? No. That's how most artists get their start. Prince actually published Sexy Motherfucker <laughs> in the Star <laughs> Tribune first <laughs> when he was re- seven years old. Wow. Yeah. Didn't realize that. Yeah. Clyde was writing stories for publication when he was 13 years old. And he was one of the men at Weird Tales magazine back in the beginning. This story, as you said, was in the very first and second issues of Weird Tales, March and April of 1923. He took over as editor after Edwin Baird left later that year for one issue. In his writing, Clyde also had his own occult detective character, Dr. Dorp, (laughs) who was in Weird Tales. I just love that there were so many of this very specific type of character. Uh, Everybody yeah. had one. Dr. Satan, I can understand, but Dr. Dorp? Yeah. When Farnsworth Wright took over Weird Tales in 1925, he dropped the writer's pay to half a cent per word. It was a cent per word. Hmm. So Klein stopped writing for Weird Tales, but he came back late in 1926 when the rates went back up to one cent a word. All right. Klein was also the agent of Robert E. Howard. So 10% of his cent per word, too. <laughs> There was a fabricated feud between Klein and Edgar Rice Burroughs. Donald A. Walheim wrote an article for Science Fiction News saying that Burroughs thought that Klein was ripping him off with his Venus novels. He was writing fantasy fiction that took place on Venus as Burroughs Mm -hmm. had his John Carter of Mars. And Klein also had some jungle stuff that seemed kind of similar to Tarzan. Yeah. Supposedly, Edgar Rice Burroughs was mad about this. Both Burroughs and Klein were asked directly about this so-called feud. Neither of them knew anything about it oh no and when confronted walheim said oh yeah i made it all up what a terrible thing to do though that could really damage his career in some way klein was known for liking fine food smoke and drink plus he was a swordsman (laughs) what do you mean he fought with the sword he liked fencing and sword fighting went to his studio and learned how to do it was he he, in the papers for fighting people with swords no he was (laughs) just No, it was like fencing and, right. you know, like all, there's other types, there's Japanese uh, style. There's all different types of sword craft. So he was a gentleman swordsman. Yes. Yeah. No, he didn't actually, as far as I know, didn't right. stab anybody. He kept the sword in the cane. Right. But it was there. But he was also a hunter, a fisherman, a boating enthusiast, a man of action, despite being remarkably overweight. Unfortunately, he did have a heart attack and died in 1946 at the age of 55. Too young. Mm-hmm. And I've read lots of stuff about him. Everybody just adored this guy. He was yeah. really nice, deeply loved. Everybody says he was friend to all, enemy to none. His one issue when he was editor of Weird Tales, that interim mm-hmm. issue, he, he wrote a little manifesto for the magazine, actually. Let's look at a few excerpts from that. It's kind of lengthy, mm-hmm. but I'll pull out a few. The essay was called Why Weird Tales by Otis Adelbert Klein from Weird Tales, May, June, July. That was of 1924, 100 years ago. Up to the day the first issue of Weird Tales was placed on the stands, Stories of the sort you read between these covers each month were taboo in the publishing world. The greatest weird story and one of the greatest short stories ever written, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, would not have stood the ghost of a show in any modern editorial office previous to the launching of Weird Tales. 
Had Edgar Allan Poe produced that masterpiece in this generation, he would have searched in vain for a publisher before the advent of this magazine. We make no pretension of publishing or even trying to publish a magazine that will please everybody. What we have done and will continue to do is to gather around us an ever-increasing body of readers who appreciate the weird, the bizarre, the unusual, who recognize true art in fiction. <laughs> I thought as a persuasive essay technique that was nice, very flattering to the audience. Oh, and yeah. then take a switch. Let's find a common enemy. The writing of the common run of stories today has, unfortunately for American literature, taken on the character of an exact science. Such stories are entirely mechanical, conforming to fixed rules. A good analogy might be found in the music of the electric piano. It is technically perfect, mechanically true, but lacking in expression. I was like, uh-oh, is he talking about AI? Uh -huh. Or studio-written Marvel movies? You know, mm -hmm. these are the, still the same complaints you hear today. Yeah. The types of stories we have published and will continue to publish may be placed under two classifications. The first of these is the story of psychic phenomena, or the occult story, which is mm -hmm. what we're going to have today. Yep. The second classification might be termed highly imaginative stories. These are stories of advancement in the sciences and the arts to which the generation of the writer who creates them has not attained. All writers of such stories are prophets, and in the years to come, many of their prophecies will come true. I thought that was cool because mm. it shows they had a science fiction bent from the beginning. Yeah. Writers of highly imaginative fiction have, in times past, drawn back the veil of centuries, allowing their readers to look at the wonders of the present. True, these visions were often distorted, as by a mirror with a curved surface, but just as truly were they actual reflections of the present. It is the mission of Weird Tales to find present-day writers who have this faculty. And then it goes on to trace the origins of science fiction and horror through literature. It's a little like supernatural horror in literature, Lovecraft's mm. essay. I bet he read this. A spirited defense of the exact kind of material we cover here on the show. I'll link yep. to it in the show notes. But enough about that. Let's get into his story. It begins with our protagonist, Billy, getting a telegram announcing the death of his uncle, Jimmy. Uncle Jim raised Billy since both of his parents died in the Iroquois Theater Fire, which was an actual event. It happened in 1903. The Iroquois had... 1,600 people in it, and 602 of them died. This was in Chicago. The Iroquois Theater fire was the deadliest single-building disaster in American history prior to 9-11. Mm. The fire broke out about 3.15 p.m. while the Iroquois presented a matinee performance of the musical Mr. Bluebeard, which I thought was kind of a macabre choice of programming, given that it's about a torture chamber, the bloody right. chamber. A broken arc lamp ignited some muslin curtains, which stage managers were unable to douse an attempt to lower the safety curtain to contain the fire was unsuccessful. Audience members frantically rushed for the exits, only to find that fire exits were locked or hidden. Oh, God. The largest death toll was at the base of the stairways, where hundreds of people were trampled, crushed, or asphyxiated. Some people jumped to their deaths from the fire escapes. The Iroquois had no fire alarm box or telephone, which hampered initial rescue efforts. And this fire would have been something that everybody in 1923 would have remembered, especially in the Midwest. Another thing that's interesting to me about these years here, I feel like a broken record mentioning it, but my dad was born in 1924. Mm. I'm sure that people said about him, you know, these kids don't remember what it was like before the Iroquois fire. You could go to a theater and not have to worry about it. I bet. Just kind of puts things in perspective. Now grown up, Billy is a bookkeeper in Chicago. Uncle Jim put Billy through school at great personal cost to himself. He's known around Peoria to be well off, so finding out that things were kind of tight was a recent revelation. Uncle Jim was a bachelor, but had a housekeeper. Uncle Jim's house is on a farm that he owns. The farm is worked by the Severs family, who have residents on the property as well. Despite being a businessman, Uncle Jim was a scientist and a dreamer. 
He studied psychic phenomena. Sure, there were a lot of charlatans at the time, but sometimes he actually found the real thing. As an authority on psychic phenomena, he had contributed articles to the leading scientific publications from time to time and was the author of a dozen well-known books on the subject. I noticed that he doesn't name any of these leading scientific publications. <laughs> I feel like finding real evidence of this stuff would be kind of bigger news as well if he in fact did, but yeah. Uncle Jim really committed to it. It says he had attended seances in this country and abroad, with the leading spiritualists of the world. So, well, no wonder he didn't have much money. If he was chasing that around. Yeah. It's old hat to us in the Lovecraft biz, but spiritualism was exploding in the 1920s with people really taking it seriously and other people just indulging it as a trend. But uh -huh. that's why this period shows up so much in horror content because this stuff was fashionable. Yeah. Spirit photography, seances. Spirit Airlines was still a reputable airline at the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're still flying those planes from 1923. <laughs> but no, it was, it was huge at the time. Billy takes off for Peoria immediately. He arrives by train, is picked up by Joe Severs, son of the farmer. They get to the farm just after midnight, and the housekeeper, Mrs. Rhodes, is still awake. She has obviously been crying, and she takes Billy to the room where his uncle's body is being kept. The room is lit by a single kerosene lamp and a fire in the fireplace. Very creepy. I like to think, you know, there's a dead guy in there. It's just the fire and a mm -hmm. little lamp. and ugh. yeah. Two men are there sitting with the body. As I looked down on that noble, kindly face, the old lump, which had for a time subsided, came back into my throat. I expected tears, heart-rending sobs, but they did not come. I seemed dazed, bewildered. Suddenly, and apparently against my own reason, I heard myself saying aloud, He is not dead, only sleeping. Everyone looks oddly at Billy, and he repeats himself. Mrs. Rhodes comes in and tells the men, his mind's affected. That's actually really unsettling mm. to say something and not mean to. Yeah. And it also is interesting that here in the first issue of Weird Tales, you have a somewhat prototypical, he is not dead, only dreaming. Oh, yeah. She leads Billy out of the room. He knows his uncle is dead. He looks dead. A doctor declared him dead. He's dead. But why did he say that? Is it grief? Exhaustion? Billy decides that he wants to keep watch with the men there, Mr. Newberry and Mr. Glitch neighbors of Uncle Jim's, but Mrs. Rhodes and the men tell him that he needs to get some sleep. He's traveled, and he didn't sleep the night before. Mr. Glitch is just a grown-up Augustus Gloop, Colonel Clink type, <laughs> German stereotype. They just tell him to get some rest because he's already acting kind of squirrely, so yeah. he wouldn't be much help. Mrs. Rhodes takes him to his room, and he gets into bed. Just as he drifts off, he hears a distant voice. Billy, <laughs> save me, Billy. Oh, my God. He's not sure if he's dreaming. <laughs> <sighs> he's not sure if he's dreaming or not, but then he sees something about the size and shape of a half-grown conger eel was creeping across my bed. Whoa. A conger eel is six feet long, so half-grown, like a three-foot-long thing creeping on his bed. That's scary, but did you know what a conger eel was offhand? No. So you had to look it up? I looked it up. Who in the world knows what a conger eel <laughs> Oh, a conger eel. When Billy sees this, he just freezes. I perceived the white, nameless thing in the dim light from my window. With a convulsive movement, I threw the bedclothes from me, leaped to the floor, struck a match, and quickly lit the lamp. Then, taking my heavy walking stick in hand, I advanced on the bed. But there's nothing there! He does a thorough search of the room, but still nothing. He's freaked out, but he chalks it up to being half asleep and exhaustion. When he goes back to bed, however, he leaves the lamp on. After a half hour of restless turning and tossing, I succeeded in going to sleep. This time for possibly twenty minutes when I was once more aroused. The same feeling of horror came over me, 
as I distinctly heard a rolling, scraping sound beneath my bed. I kept perfectly still and waited while the sound went on. Something was apparently creeping underneath my bed, and it seemed to be moving toward the foot, slowly and laboriously. Stealthily, I sat up, leaned forward, and peered over the footboard. The sounds grew more distinct, and a white, round mass, which looked like a porcupine rolled into a ball with bristles projecting, emerged from under my bed. I uttered a choking cry of fright, and the thing disappeared before my eyes. What? Is that a ghost porcupine? I guess so. Man, that's one of those things where, you know, I'd never do in a million years. If I heard something creeping out from under the bed, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lean over and take a look and see what it is. (laughs) No? No way. I just wait and then hope it doesn't crawl up the side of the bed. And if it did, I kick it. Billy doesn't bother searching at that point. He just runs out of the room and downstairs. Newberry sees him freaking out. Embarrassed, Billy says, "Uh, I couldn't sleep. And I just came down for the company. Glitch is there, but he's sleeping on the couch. They get to talking, and Newberry tells him that Uncle Jim left instructions for his body not to be embalmed or iced or anything. And it's not to be buried until putrefaction sets in. Supposedly, Mm. he should start to putrefy in about 24 hours. Now, this is an odd request. Perhaps his uncle was afraid of being buried alive. Not sure. They sit in quiet for a moment, and Billy feels himself start to drift off to sleep when Newberry shouts, Look! and points. When Billy looks, he sees something white, like a wisp of smoke coming out of his uncle's nose. You know, I already got that this was some kind of ectoplasmic emanation. The title tells you that something's going to be shifting from shape to shape. Yeah. But I didn't like thinking about it crawling around on a corpse. And (laughs) just to say something obvious, Uh the corpse is like the worst part of a funeral. (laughs) It's Mm -hmm. important to see a body because then your brain clicks with what has happened. Yeah. It's very shocking, but it's not something you want your eyes to linger on. And, you know, thinking about something messing around up in there, uh, it, it did genuinely creep me out. Newberry says, just as I said it, the white stuff shot back into Jim's nose. Mm. Newberry backpedals and attributes this to his imagination. Newberry goes to sleep on the couch. Billy tries to wait up with Glitch, but he falls asleep again, but he's quickly wakened. Glitch says that there is a cat in the room. We get some great phonetic, and I mean great, very sarcastically phonetic writing here because glitch is as you said german and glitch claims that a large cat jumped into the coffin but when they look nothing's there they're big white cat said glitch visibly excited just now he came their door through and yumped their coffin in (laughs) the three of us rushed to the coffin but there was no sign of a cat and everything seemed undisturbed that's funny said glitch Maybe it's hiding some bears in their room. (laughs) Glitch claims that it was big like a dog, but it moved like a feline. Everybody is really freaked out by this and taking it very seriously, because obviously something's going on here, but they just don't know what. If a dog's acting like a cat, even in your imagination, something is profoundly wrong. (laughs) No one can go back to sleep, so they just all sit by the fire. I think that Klein is setting a template here where the effect is more important than the plot. We know where this is going, and eventually it'll resolve in some way, but it's about atmosphere surrounding an obvious mystery, which so much of Lovecraft's stuff would be later. Yeah. There's a mystery that you understand the character doesn't, so that creates suspense. You wonder when will they realize Uncle Jim is calling for help with a porcupine ghost? Yeah. (laughs) When will they realize that? And that's the suspenseful feeling you're having. But no, I mean, it's kind of neat what's happening here, actually. I got into it. You did too, right? I did too. Yeah, I really enjoyed the story. At 4 a.m., they see a mouse gray bat hanging from the top of the curtains. They're confused as to how this thing got in. 
Despite that, Newberry gets fire tongs. That's a strange choice. And he yeah. tries to grab the bat. He misses and the bat flutters around the room. Fire tongs are the traditional weapon against a ghost bat. <laughs> or it's defining that. What would become a trope of the ghost bat story is having its very first appearance here, which is exciting. <laughs> they chase it around for a few minutes, but give up trying to catch it. Eventually, it lands to rest. Glitch grabs a book and he throws it at the bat, hitting it. But when they lift the book, the bat is gone. Completely disappeared. I picked up the book and noticed as I did so a grayish smear on the back cover. Taking this over to the light, we saw that it had a soapy appearance. The ghost bat left some residue. So there is evidence. Stop everything, go to the science lab, hope that there's not a supervillain working, because he might turn this into some ghost technology you don't want. But get this tested for ghosts, guys. That's yeah. what I... These guys aren't positive about what they saw, however, so they don't do that. They just spend some time speculating. They're puzzled, but Glitch, he's got an explanation. A vampire. He related in particular the story of a Hungarian named Arnold Paul, whose body was dug up after it had been buried 40 days. It was found that his cheeks were flushed with blood and that his hair, beard, and nails had grown in the grave. When the stake was driven through his heart, he had uttered a frightful shriek and a torrent of blood gushed from his mouth. Oh no, should we have saved this story for March? <laughs> Only time will tell. Remember how boastful we were about doing Blocks the Living Dead in November? We can mm -hmm. do a marches for Dracula's whenever we want. <laughs> Turns out, this shares some elements with that story. It does. You know, we'll still do marches for Dracula's, but you can't stop the Dracula's from marching. No. And they march through every month of the year. <laughs> Just like your mother used to tell you. <laughs> she did. Billy doesn't believe in vampires, but there is obviously something strange going on. Mm -hmm. However, his uncle was a good man. He would never become some kind of evil monster. Morning comes, and Mrs. Rode makes him breakfast for the men, but something is still off. I read something in the uneasy manner of Glitch, which led me to believe that I could not count on him. And I was therefore not greatly surprised when he telephoned me an hour later, stating that his wife was ill and that he would not be able to come. So Mr. Glitch is blaming the wife. That gets us into chapter two. Billy goes outside and smokes a cigar. He thinks about what happened and the metaphysical implications. What is supernatural? If something is beyond understanding, is there anything truly unnatural? If you can just explain it, then it has an explanation and then it's part of the natural world. Nature, according to my belief, was only another name for God. If he were omnipotent, could anything take place contrary to his laws? Obviously not. <laughs> He's just kind of adjusting the definition to fit anything, right? Yeah. The word supernatural was, after all, only an expression invented by man in his finite ignorance to define those things which he did not understand. And he goes on to say things like the phonograph. I think that was supernatural back in the day. Sure. I resolved then and there that if further phenomena manifested themselves that night, I would, as far as it were possible, curb my superstition and fear, regard them with the eye of a philosopher, and endeavor to learn their cause, which must necessarily be governed by natural law. So reason prevails over his emotional fear, and the protagonist isn't wrong. In the world of this story, mm. you probably can find a reason for all this business. After musing, Joe Severs, son of his uncle's tenant, brings him some bad news. Glitch's wife has died that morning. Oh no, she really was ill. Yeah, it wasn't an excuse. And Glitch has completely latched onto this vampire explanation. And not just him, others are starting to think that this makes sense. They think Uncle Jim is a vampire. Oh no, the townspeople. That's how this is like the living dead. The townspeople thinking that Uncle Jim is a vampire. And in seeing this, it kind of made me think, it seems like the townspeople are actually their own category of monster. Yes. We'll talk about zombies as a metaphor for the mob. And we completely overlook that the actual mob is in a lot of these stories. Oh, you know, absolutely. zombies are, are maybe more about disease and war. 
giant mass cruelties, whereas the townspeople are really about weaponization of ignorance, mob mentality, the danger of groups. That's Mm -hmm. the townspeople. That's what that monster is. Yeah. So much of shows like The Walking Dead or any of those things, it's the the, the zombies aren't the real problem. It's the right. other humans. It's groups. A person is smart. People are stupid. Yeah. Mrs. Rhodes comes out and tells him that he's got a call. Mrs. Newberry, she says that her husband has taken ill as well and won't be able to sit up with him tonight. Billy knows that he's not going to find anybody else that's going to sit up with him that evening. And to be honest, he's kind of scared to do it by himself. Mm-hmm. In fact, he's thinking about just getting the hell out of Dodge. But just then... A letter of his uncle's falls on the floor. Billy picks it up, takes a look, and the last bit catches his eye. Billy, my boy, don't worry any more about the money I advanced you. It was, as you say, a considerable drain on my resources, but I gave it willingly, gladly, for the education of my sister's son. My only regret is that I could not have done more. Affectionately, Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim's laying a little bit of a guilt trip on him. I know. Come on. A Jeez. considerable drain on my resources. <laughs> I had half a sliver of water last night for dinner, <laughs> but I give it willingly. Billy feels guilty and foolish and is resolved to see his uncle's wishes through. That night, Billy sits in the room by himself. Mrs. Rhodes says a quick good night, and he is alone. He finds one of the books that his uncle wrote and looks through it, a bit catching Billy's attention. The source and physical composition, if indeed it be physical, of a phantasm materialized by a true medium remains up to the present time inexplicable. That such manifestations are not a hallucination has been proved time and time again by taking photographs. One would indeed be compelled to strain his credulity to the utmost were he to believe that a mere hallucination could be photographed. Mm. As I have stated, the exact nature and source of the phenomena are apparently inscrutable. However, it is a notable fact that the strongest manifestations take place when the medium is in a state of catalepsy or suspended animation her hands are cold her body becomes rigid her eyes if open appear to be fixed on space mm-hmm. catalepsy you say yeah so i think it's pretty obvious what's going on here mm-hmm. to us creating suspense just then a peal of thunder rocks the house mrs rhodes comes in and asks billy to help her close all the windows When he returns, he sees something extraordinary. A white sheet has appeared over his uncle's body. It then begins to lift up from a single point and travels to the ceiling, and then bam, thunder again with a blinding flash of light, and the sheet is gone. Billy is about to light his pipe when he sees another strange thing. Something round and flat, about six inches in diameter and of a grayish color, was moving along the floor from the casket toward the center of the room. I watched it, fascinated while the blood seemed to congeal in my veins. It did not roll or slide along the floor, but seemed rather to flow forward. It moves like a giant amoeba. The thing goes into the center of the room and changes, first into a trilobite, and then into a starfish, then a crab, and then a porpoise swimming around the room like the air was made of water. The porpoise becomes a lizard with wings, a shape Billy would later identify as a pterodactyl. It flies around the room, and becomes a bird, and then something like an ostrich. I was not prepared for there to be a ghost porpoise. Certainly not a ghost pterodactyl in this story. If you said write down the 1,000 shapes you think you might see, I don't know if I'd get to either of those. No, I don't think so. It then becomes a gorilla-like creature. From that, it becomes something between man and an ape. The missing link, he calls it. And then it becomes less ape-like and more man. It has a club, and then a spear, then a sword. And then it appears as a Roman soldier, then it becomes a knight, changes to a musketeer, and then a colonial soldier. At that instant, there was a crash of glass, and the branch of a tree projected through the windows on the right of the fireplace. 
The shade flew up with a snap and the soldier disappeared as a brilliant flash of lightning illuminated the room. I rushed to the window and saw that the overhanging limb of an elm had been broken off by the wind and hurled through the glass. The rain was coming in in torrents. The housekeeper, who had heard the noise, appeared in the doorway. Seeing the rain blowing in at the window, she left and returned a moment later with a hammer, tacks, and a folded sheet. I tacked the sheet to the window frame with difficulty on account of the strong wind, and again pulled down the shade. Mrs. Rhodes retired. I consulted my watch. It lacked just one minute of midnight. Only half of the night gone. Would I be strong enough to endure the other half? And that is the end of this section of the story. Mm-hmm. It previews that there will be another half, and that's going to be in the second issue of Weird Tales, and in the second installment of this coverage on Strange Studies of Strange Stories. So far, you know, you can see what's happening, yeah. but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder why the emanation went through that whole evolution from amoeba to soldier. Yeah, I was thinking about that quite a bit. And the only possible explanation that comes to mind for me is that there's some sort of ancestral memory. Like we come from some primal source and Mm -hmm. to get to the state where he can communicate, he needs to go to the very beginning and then go through all of the forms to get to his present state. Right. I think it's pretty obvious at this point, and we're right. <laughs> Uncle Jim is in a state of catalepsy, and he is doing psychic ectoplasmic projections to yeah. try and communicate something. We don't know right. why he's in a cataleptic state and why he's having to go through this stuff yet, but that will become clear in the second part of the story. Oh, will it? Okay. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I actually haven't read all of the second part yet, so hopefully it will become clear. It was seeming like it wasn't, so I'm interested <laughs> in finding out. I I think it's kind of neat that evolution at the end, though, you know, the Scopes trial regarding the teaching of evolution Uh that kicked off in 1925, just a year and a half after this. Mm -hmm. It was quite a debate at the time whether evolution was something that we should be teaching our children. Right. Probably still is in some quarters, but I think it intrudes in on the story. And this is a story that's full of all sorts of logical fallacies. My favorite being in his journal when he says, if you don't think beer photography is real, let me ask you, can you really photograph a hallucination? No, you cannot. So therefore, this is real. <laughs> it's like, huh? But he's a good writer, and I liked his forward to that uh, issue of Weird Tales that he edited. Mm-hmm. I also, quite a bit, like our reader today, Andrew oh Lehman. God, Andrew Lehman is amazing. He's a prince among men. And also, check out his Dark Adventure Radio Theater with the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Their new adventure is out now. Get it now while supplies last. I also want to thank some of our stakers who make these free shows possible. I'm going to start by thanking the king of all the snakes. I'd like to thank Crypto Cryptographer. Alistair Brooks, thank you so much. The twins. Thank you. As always, Boss Coffee, thank you. Angelina Brown, thank you. Eric Espelode, MD, thank you so much. Hey, Richard Wolf, thank you. And Ben A., thank you. If you have the ability, folks, please subscribe to the show and keep us going. We'll be back with our second installment on The Thing of a Thousand Shapes next week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to Strange Studies of Strange Stories at strangestudies.com. Strange Studies of Strange Stories. Ah!